This morning, we, we're in the last section of John chapter five. We've been in a you know, verse-by-verse walk through the Gospel of John. We began on Easter Sunday morning. We'll be in it for some time to come, tracking this, this amazing Gospel that was written uh, in order that the, the astounding claims of Jesus would be seen to be well-proven, well-believable, and that believing in those claims and trusting one's life in, by faith onto Jesus Christ would result in, in eternal life. For the believer, it's a good thing to be encouraged regarding the authenticity of the gospel. For the unbeliever, it is larger than a mere life and death matter. John chapter five opens with the third of seven sign miracles. This middle section of the Gospel of John is organized largely around these seven signpost miracles. We'll recap later a little bit about the first and second, but the third of these is the healing of a man who had been lame and who had been lying publicly near a pool in Jerusalem for 38 years. Some authors suggest, and I I think I agree with this, that the reason Jesus deliberately chose this man among several who were were sick or or, uh, injured at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus deliberately chose this guy because he was so well known. This was not some, some passing condition this man had, some come and go illness. He had been there at that pool daily for 38 years. Jesus, thus healing him, became an undeniable act of of supernatural healing. I mean, if this guy's faking it, they're definitely doing the long con, you know what I mean? 38 years. So Jesus heals him, but he heals him on the Sabbath day. And the the, uh, ever-encircling representatives of the Jewish religious status quo observed the miracle, but were most offended when Jesus told the man who had been healed, now pick up your, your mat, your, your bed roll, whatever that is you have been lying on, take, pick it up and walk away with it. You won't be coming here anymore. And the moment he did that, the uh, scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders of the Jews, sort of classified that as moving furniture on the Sabbath. It was Sabbath labor, and that was and, 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 that was a major rules infraction, and they bounced him for it. And his response is, look, I, I didn't do this on my own. I didn't get up and walk on my own, and I didn't decide to take up my bedroll on my own. The guy who healed me told me to do that, and... By the way, if he had done for you what he did for me, you'd do what he says as well. So blame him. And they did, and they got murderously angry at Jesus, and they approached Jesus. Remember, this is fairly early in Jesus' public ministry, and I, I bet, this is speculation, but I bet they expected an apology from Jesus. I bet when they, when they approached Jesus and said, you, you do know you have violated Sabbath regulation, they ex- probably expected Jesus 
to shrink before their astounding religious authority. Well, shucks, guys, I sure didn't mean to offend. Well, <laughs> Jesus likes to defy expectation. Jesus instead said, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not wrong. You guys want to split hairs with me over Sabbath regulation. Let me tell you what the deal is. I invented the Sabbath. It's my idea because I'm God. Any further questions? Whoa, not the response they expected. And by the way, I alluded to this last week, down the ages there has always been a branch of pseudo-scholarship and in that certain pseudo-scholars who, who would assert quite confidently that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, John 5 is for you. Because the whole chapter is Jesus claiming to be God. There is no John 5 if Jesus doesn't claim to be God. And in the first paragraph or the first section of Jesus' response, which we studied together last week, Jesus drives home again and again and again his absolute identification with God the Father, his claim to be God. We come now to the last paragraph of John 5. Jesus' discourse continues. He's still talking to these unbelieving Jewish leaders, these religiously intense people who refuse to acknowledge him as the Son of God and Savior of the world. One person, I put this in the minutes, or in the notes, in the minutes. Boy, I go to too many meetings. <laughs> I put this in the notes. One I actually just called those the minutes. Wow, my brain is bent. One person's testimony about himself is not generally given much weight. Here, Jesus summons four compelling witnesses to the reality of his person and work. The first couple of verses are, are a, a reassertion in verse 30 of what he has said before, a reencapsulation of his identity with God the Father when he says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. That is, as I hear from my Father. Context makes that clear. I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in verse 31, he sort of frames up the rest of what he's going to say when he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Let me tell you what he's not doing. What he's not doing, he's not saying, by the way, the things I say are unreliable. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, you and I both acknowledge a legal framework wherein my own testimony about myself would not generally be regarded as highly reliable. Anybody can say anything about themselves on their own. He's not saying that he's not speaking truth. He's saying, I get that in order for there to be perceived reliability in my witness, I need to, I need to have more than just me. Thus, my title this morning, who says Jesus is God? He's going to call in verses 20, 32 through 39, he's going to call four witnesses. Let me read verses 32 through 39. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. 
You sent to John, he's speaking of John the Baptist. You sent to John and he has borne witness to this truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me, according, or given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Four witnesses, I've just numbered them, one, two, three, four on your outline. The first is the witness of John the Baptist. It was generally acknowledged even by these Jewish leaders that John the Baptist was the, was the first prophet sent as a direct prophetic spokesman for God in, well, about 400 years. You and I, with the perspective of, of more complete history looking back, would say, yep, he's the, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets who came to bear witness to Jesus at, after a, a 400-year period of silence, after the end of what we call the Old Testament, one more prophet arises. And the Jewish leaders, for a while, we're pleased that yet again God was speaking prophetically to his people Israel. There were enormous crowds that went out into the wilderness to hear the preaching of John the Baptist. And for a while the Jewish leaders were, were content to, if not openly endorse him, at least not oppose him. But then he announced Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, if you'll turn back a few pages or, or repoint your app to John chapter 1, verse 34, where John the Baptist says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this, that is Jesus, is the Son of God. Well, they didn't like that at all. And in fact, in the time between the preaching ministry of John the Baptist and this passage in John 5, John the Baptist has, in fact, died. He's, he's been killed by King Herod. Now, it's interesting that, that, that John doesn't make much mention of that, but we shared this when we shared the introduction to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is written decades after the other three Gospels. And John, writing toward the latter part of the first century A.D., assumes, rightly so, that most of his readers would be familiar with the gospel message as recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John often refers to events in those gospels as, those, as though his readers would be familiar with them. And, and, and we obviously are because we have access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. But John the Baptist, my first witness, second, <coughs> I call the witness of my own miraculous deeds. Verse 38, the, uh, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These miraculous signposts. By now, 
Jesus has completed three of the seven. Now, John's seven signpost miracles are not the complete catalog of, of miraculous things Jesus did. They're, they're ones that God the Holy Spirit led John to select, but the, the ones so far are, are a very remarkable set. The first of them is the changing of water into wine at the wedding of Cana, back in John chapter two. The, the constituent components of wine are not present in a jar of water. That miracle is a miracle of creation. Only God has the power to create. Satan can corrupt and he can counterfeit, but he can't actually create. And so that miracle proves since only God can create and Jesus has demonstrated the power to create, Jesus is therefore God. That's the signpost. The second miracle is the long-distance healing of the official son, once again, in Cana, in Galilee. And while Jesus is going to, to perform various healing miracles, often those healing miracles are meant to assert something beyond just his power to heal. In this case, recall that the healing of the man's son took place over a day's journey away while Jesus and the official were having a conversation, thus demonstrating that Jesus is the master of time and space. Only God is the master of time and space. Therefore, Jesus is God. Recall that this conversation is taking place in a context of the Sabbath. And the, the quibble that the Jewish leadership have, <laughs> it's fascinating how insane their response is. They don't bother saying Jesus didn't do it. They don't, you know, a sane response would be, whoa, dude, we've known that guy for 38 years and he can't walk and today he can. Why don't you talk while we write? What do you want from us? That would be a sane response. But instead it's, you told him pick up his bed. We, we jump right over the miracle and Jesus' point is his mastery over the Sabbath as God. Jesus asserts lordship over the Sabbath. Only God is Lord of the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus is God. And so in addition to the witness of John the Baptist, Jesus says, I call the witness of what I'm doing, which you cannot deny. That bears witness to my reliability that I am who I say I am. Third witness he calls is the audible voice of God the Father. Another event that's uh, covered in the other three gospels, and John again assumes we know about it, is the audible voice of the Father speaking from heaven at Jesus' actual baptism. When John the Baptist baptized Jesus, we are told in Matthew chapter three, Mark chapter one, and Luke chapter three, that God the Father audibly spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus here says, you guys weren't there for that. You didn't hear it. But many did, and I call as witness those who heard the voice of my Father from heaven. Indeed, I call the voice of the Father 
himself who has spoken, affirming who I am. And then my fourth witness, the Old Testament scriptures. Man, if you were to say to me, Russell, you, you sometimes demonstrate a real lack of knowledge regarding the Old Testament. I would sheepishly hang my head and say, and various of my Old Testament professors would agree with that statement based on some of the grades I occasionally got. But I've worked hard since then. But when you say to the scribes and Pharisees, you do not have his word abiding in you, verse 38. He's saying, you know what? For all of your nitpicking, for all of your focus on minutia, you are history's greatest example of missing the forest for the trees. You're all bogged down in how many steps you're allowed to walk on the Sabbath day. You're all bogged down in what length the fringe of your prayer shawl should be. You're all bogged down in, in the, the Old Testament's laws, but worse, all the minutia of regulation you've piled on top of them, and you have entirely missed the point of God's word. You've missed, you don't even understand the Old Testament at all. It is the story of me. We have various places around our campus that we, that we uh, have, have artwork on the walls. I gotta tell you, this is one of my favorite pieces. This, this hangs in the, uh, near the entrance to the preschool ministry. If you, if you go over to the whole building and you go through the lobby of the preschool ministry and you head on down the hall, this hangs to your left as you go down the hall, and I like it a lot. If you understand what the graphic is doing, it, 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 the, the, the character in the middle is a, is a representation of Jesus. And around the circle, starting with the earth, the globe, starting Adam and Eve are kind of hanging upside down there near the globe. So it starts with creation. And it, and it goes in a big circle. And, and if you stand there and look at this piece of art, you can pick out what Old Testament stories there specifically they've selected to make the major point that the caption says at the top, every story points to the one. The Old Testament, I love that instead of teaching our very littlest preschoolers that the Old Testament is some loosely connected set of moral tales like, I don't know, Grimm's fairy tales or something, that we start very young emphasizing to our littlest people that the Old Testament is a story of looking forward to a savior. The Old Testament's about Jesus. And Jesus here tells these leaders, you don't even get God's word. It's not made its way to your heart. If it had, you'd follow me. Well, those are, those are four pretty compelling witnesses. Those witnesses, by the way, are still present today. In today's world, we can readily call, we can't necessarily call John the Baptist, but we can call as witness the faithful followers of Christ down the ages who have said, let me tell you who he is, let me tell you what he's done. So that, that witness of the Lord's people is still summoned today. And if you're a follower of Christ, I pray that you are effective in your role as a witness to who Jesus is and what he's done. His miracles, we can still call to the stand the power of Jesus.
the life change that he affects, the things that have been accomplished in his name. Look, look down the 2,000 years of history. Has, have the followers of Christ always gotten everything right? Of course not. But we've done more in, in medical ministry, built more hospitals, built more schools, advanced more learning than any other entity in history has been the cause of Christ, the most effective agent for cultural change in the 2,000 years since Jesus has been the message of Jesus. We can call to witness the power of Jesus. The audible voice of God from heaven, well, we've not heard that. But neither had Jesus' hearers on this day heard it. Nonetheless, Jesus said it happened. God the Father spoke from heaven, identifying Jesus as his son. And then fourth, the witness of God's word. You know what? We have more of it than the scribes and Pharisees had. The, the Jesus Film Project identifies 55 highly specific prophecies that the Old Testament gives that are fulfilled in Jesus. Some scholars place the number as high as 300, but the Jesus Film sets their standard very, very high regarding what is a prophecy regarding Jesus. Some of those prophecies had already been fulfilled the day Jesus had this conversation with the Jewish leaders. His place of birth, the manner of his birth, his descendancy from uh, David, the fact that he would flee to Egypt and come back early in his life, the fact that he would have a forerunner who in tone would seem like Elijah. Those things were already fulfilled. Many, many more exist as you and I look at the word of God. One of the most dramatic for me, if you said, well, is there a single prophecy I ought to look at? You ought to look at Psalm 22. There is absolutely no question that Psalm 22 is part of a hymn book for Israel that was compiled and fully in existence about a thousand years before the time of Christ. And yet Psalm 22 describes in graphic detail the crucifixion of Jesus, which occurred more than a thousand years later. If you deny that, you are being intellectually dishonest. If you fail to reckon with the conclusions of such an eerily accurate prophecy, unquestionably predating Jesus by more than a thousand years, again, you are being intellectually dishonest. We can call the same witness as Jesus called. God's people, his miraculous power, the voice of his father from heaven, and the incredible testimony of God's word. Those are great witnesses. As I've written it on your outline, those are strong witnesses. One would need compelling reasons to continue in unbelief. Here, Jesus gives five. In the rest of this paragraph, Jesus is going to give five reasons for unbelief. Beginning in verse 40, let me just read. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Five reasons for unbelief. The first and the centerpiece of all of them is the sinner's corrupt will. 
the sinner's corrupt will. Verse 40, you refuse to come to me. You refuse to come to me. In his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter three, we saw Jesus say, this is condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The, uh, the children of Adam and Eve, you and I, suffer from a corruption of our will. Talk about the free will of man all you wish, but our will is not free. It is tied up in the corrupt state of our fallenness. Here, Jesus doesn't say, and you've yet to, you've yet to get adequate evidence to believe. These guys were eyewitness to the miracle that had just occurred, if not anything else. You refuse to believe. You are steadfast in your love of your sin. That excuse still stands. Among those who would hear and reject the gospel, a steadfast, corrupt commitment to love their sin more than they love a potential savior. Second, the sinner's self-glorification. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. That is, I am not the object of your worship. I am not the object of the glorification of sinners. Sinners are too busy glorifying themselves. The, the aim is my own declaration of myself as master. My own declaration of myself as authority. This has never been more rampant in a culture than it is rampant in ours. Not that many decades ago, in an era the historians call the modern era, the, the arena of ideas was about, let's look at what is in order to determine truth. That is no longer the way the arena of ideas works in this, what is called now by the historians, postmodern era. It's no longer, let's look at what is to determine truth. Oh, no. What is at issue today is my truth. You may have your truth. I get to have my truth. And conversations about, no, 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 no. What is actually true? Ah, that doesn't matter. What matters is my truth. So we don't determine truth by examining data, we determine truth by sharing stories, and having dialogue, your truth and my truth. And of late, it's gotten all the more infected because now, in addition to my being entitled to my truth, you are, in fact, obligated to my truth. I can contrive truth that isn't, and you're out of line if you don't buy it. You say, Brother Russell, what in the world are you talking about? That sounds wacky. Well, it is. Bruce Jenner can hire all the surgeons he wants and cross-dress all he wants. Bruce Jenner is a guy. He doesn't get to declare himself other than what he is. That's just wacky. 
But what I just said would be described out there as hate speech. I would be told I'm delusional. And by the way, as to this thing of my truth, your truth, if you've ever said, or if you ever say again, perception is reality, I want you to wash your mouth out with soap. (laughs) Just like mom and daddy used to do when I was little and said dumb and inappropriate things. Perception is reality, that's not true. In fact, if you can't tell the difference between perception and reality, you're delusional. That's the definition. The definition of delusionalism is the failure to perceive accurately what is reality and what is merely my perception. But not anymore. It's like the emperor's new clothes and you're back in the back going, emperor naked, I don't care what you all talking about. our desire for our own truth, our glorying of ourselves. Number three reason not to believe, the sinner's cold heart toward God. He already told them, you don't have God's word dwelling in you. Now he's going to say, (laughs) I mean, you you don't have his word abiding in you. Now he's gonna say, you do not have the love of God within you in verse 42. Oh, how you have contrived your rules. Oh, you have come up with your regulations and your crushing obligations and your minutia and your checklists. And through that all, you don't love God. You don't love God. Is Jesus a demanding savior? Oh yeah, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do the things I say? And yet he also says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light because it is born in love. We love him, thus we serve him. These guys don't love. In the absence of the love of God, they're in the heart of the sinner. Now they may love the God they've created, but they don't love the God who is, which leads to number four, the sinner's desire to have a savior that suits them. You don't believe me, but if somebody else comes down the pipe that you perceive to be a better fit for yourself, you'll love him. Our our, um, tendency, and it's as old as the New Testament, our tendency is to fabricate a God that suits our sin. The sins that need repenting of and changing are most visible in your life. My stuff's not that big a deal. And so I craft a Jesus who doesn't treat my sin as a big deal. And so my my repentance doesn't have to be transformational. I can move forward holding my sin intact and still claim to be following Jesus. But it's a Jesus I manufactured. The only Jesus there is, the only Savior there is, is the one who has described himself in this word. And you depart from this word and you are manufacturing a savior to suit your sin. And the woods are full of them. And then number five, the sinner's false hope in their own deeds. The one who will accuse you is Moses, verse 45, on whom you have set your hope. You think you're gonna be eternally okay because you're convincing yourself that you're aligned so well with the teaching of Moses, here most specifically the Mosaic Law. 
You think you're doing so well. You have placed your hope in your own performance. You think you're going to be okay because out there somewhere on some grand scale, your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds when viewed through Moses' law. And by the way, that's not true. Even by their own selfishly designed scoreboard, they're sunk. And in light of the absolute pure justice and holiness of the living God, they don't stand a chance, and I don't either, and neither do you. We need a savior, you and I, and these guys. The purpose of God's law is to drive us deeply into our need for a savior because obedience to God's law is such a futile exercise. Don't trust your own performance. And by the way, this last verse, if you don't believe his writings, that is, if you don't believe what Moses wrote, how will you believe my words? I'm gonna play with that verse in this week's Beyond the Notes podcast because there's a lot more that can be said about the relationship between trusting the things that Moses wrote, not just the law, but things like creation, the flood, the Tower of Babel, that are absolutely essential to understanding the gospel's operation in the world you and I live in. Talk to you more about that on the podcast this week. And yes, that was a plug. Jesus is all the savior there is. This book describes your condition and mine accurately. Describes our only hope accurately. Come to Jesus. He has lived a perfect life, died a horrific death on the cross to pay for the sins of mankind and now offers eternal life to all who will receive it. These scribes and Pharisees had the undeniable evidence right under their nose and chose to love their sin, their self-mastery, and their power more than they loved Jesus. What do you love more than you love Jesus? If you're an unbeliever, I'll tell you what it is. It's your sin. You don't want to lose your ability to operate in sin as though you are in charge of the universe, even as you are aware, if you're here this morning, that it's going to cost you terribly and eternally. Don't pay an eternal price for a temporary flirtation with your own sin. Turn from it and trust Jesus.